Well, as we said, we are looking at this question of uh, will faith get me to heaven? Will a faith get me to heaven? And we're going to read the Bible uh, together because what we think about these things is not really that important. It is what God says about such things. And so we're going to read the Bible together. It's from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Sarah Orr is going to come and read that for us. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Amen. It's great to uh, hear the congregation in great voice tonight, uh, and it's great to be able to sing God's praise together. Well, I'll invite you to come with me to Acts chapter 4 this evening, so if you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, then that'll be really helpful for us uh, as we think about this subject. So does having a faith mean we will get to heaven? Does having a faith mean we will get to heaven? Perhaps it's something that you've come across, perhaps a a fellow student in your classroom or in your university lecture or someone that you're working alongside. Whenever you start to engage with them about Christianity, about coming to church, they say to you, oh, well, I have a faith. And and you kind of start to smile and you think, oh, this is great. We're going to have a a really good conversation. And you, you ask them, well, what church do you go to church? They say, well, I don't really go to church. Well, what, what, do, you, do you read the Bible? The Bible? I don't really read the Bible. No. Well, what, what do you mean? And, and you find out as you start to scratch a little bit below the surface that, that actually they've had some sort of an experience with perhaps nature or, or they have an experience with, with something like uh, crystals or rocks or stones. And this seems to give them this element of faith. And they equate what happens here on a Sunday for Christians as we follow Jesus along the road of discipleship with this this thing that sits outside of Christianity. So you'll hear people say, everyone gets to heaven, don't they? That all roads lead to God. We have different variations. Some follow Muhammad. Some will follow Jesus. Other will follow Charles Russell in the Jehovah Witness movement. But in the end, we're all the same. You have your faith. I have my faith. And that's all that matters. Well, a survey of a group of Americans 
uh, and they took them in batches of 120. Don't know why, but they took them in batches of 120. And 119 out of each batch of 120 said that they believed that everybody went to heaven. They were all destined for heaven. And so then, for us as Christian people to say the words that Jesus says in John chapter 14, that He is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me, is a very hard statement in our society. And we feel that, don't we? As we are on the cusp of sharing the gospel with someone in our life, and we have maybe made this connection about having faith, and we're about to explain the good news of the gospel, there's, there's something within us wants to shrink back just in that moment, because we know this claim, this exclusive claim of Jesus will be difficult. It'll be hard for people to swallow. And why? Why now in this generation is it so difficult? I believe it's really one of the most difficult times to share the gospel because of the Oxford English Dictionary's Word of the Year in 2016, which was post-truth. Now, this is what post-truth means. The definition will come up on the, on the screen for us. Post-truth means this, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. What this means is that the, the tide of our culture has eroded statements of truth, that in a post-truth society, that what is more important to people is their emotion and their own personal belief than an objective truth. And so we find it extremely difficult to share the gospel. You have your faith, I have my faith. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in something else. You have your version of the truth, and I have my version of the truth. And even if those two contradict completely, well, it seems like no one has a problem with that anymore. Logic seems to be dead. Rational understanding appears to have been buried. And the word truth seems to have lost all of its meaning. So, with all of that in the, the current of our society, it's hardly surprising when we engage with someone about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we find a common ground, and they say that they have a faith too, that we now need to dig even deeper. What exactly do you mean by faith? What is the substance of this faith? What are you relying upon? And often it's nothing more substantial than some sort of self-constructed lucky charm that happens to help in bad times. So let me illustrate this. I was a Christian growing up at this time, but this crept into my life through a strange set of circumstances. I was playing rugby. I think I've shared something about this before. I was playing rugby for Portadown College. We were away one Saturday, and we were in a changing room, and those little balls, you know the little balls out of a ball pool, they seemed to get everywhere. Well, somehow one ended up in a rugby changing room, and we were all getting changed, and somebody was kicking the ball about, this little green ball, and it ended up in my rugby bag. Well, that day I went out, and I played a pretty decent game of rugby, and so I, in my weird way, as we do as humans, attributed my good performance to this little green ball out of the ball pool. I kid you not, ashamed to say it, 
Uh, and even though I was a Christian, this, this little green plastic ball that had no substance or value in my life started to become a substantial part of my life, and it became a, a superstitious part of my Saturday routine. So I would pack my bag, I would make sure I had my scrum hat and my mouth guard, and then what would I look for? I would look for this little green ball to make sure that it was in my bag, because that would make me play better. And that carried me through Portadown College, even into Queen's University, until someday it disappeared from a bag and I never went to search for it and I got out of that way of thinking. See how easy it is for me to attribute, for us to attribute faith, as, as it were, into some no- nonsense of, a, of an item? It's idolatry. Where this item makes me feel good, it makes me feel like I'll play better, it was a type of comfort. And this is exactly what's going on in our society as human beings. What have we done? We've replaced God with, uh, probably not for too many people, a little green ball from a ball pool, but we've replaced him with other things, things that make us feel good, things that give us a comfort. And all it is is a religious veneer. It's a covering, a way of helping us in our mind. And so what does that look like? It doesn't look like little green plastic balls, but for some people it looks like them saying, well, I pray. You pray, well, who do you pray to? We thought about this, and Nigel helped us uh, as young adults on Friday night as we thought about this. Why does the secular world still pray? You say you pray. You say you speak to who? I speak to God. Well, what is your God like? Oh, well, my God is like this. And then they tell you how they've constructed their own version of God. And someone maybe says, well, I-, I like to visit churches, or I like to go to cathedrals because it helps me connect to something greater. Some people might say, well, I'll go to the beach and I'll go for a swim, or I'll I'll go for a dunk in a cold pool, or I'll climb the moors and I'll jump in a bloody bridge, and that makes me feel like I'm connecting to something beyond me. Some people will say, I believe there is a creator, but I'm just not quite sure who he is. They believe in more. They imagine a God. They imagine that by being a half-decent person that this God of their design will look favorably upon them and will be happy with them. And perhaps that's you tonight. I don't want to offend you unnecessarily. My job here tonight is not to poke fun at anyone else's belief. I simply want to take us on a journey tonight and help us to see what we can base our lives upon that is substantial and that is true. And so if you have your faith outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what exactly is the bedrock of your belief? Is it shallow, as shallow as my little nonsense was with my green ball? Is it a creation in your mind to make you feel better about yourself? Has it answers to the questions that all of us ask as human beings? Well, as we prod this question a little bit more, and as we squeeze it a little bit more here this evening, uh, two things. If you're a Christian, I I want to give you three simple statements tonight that I hope will sharpen your conversations and that it will distill your faith down. If you you like, it's a short three-point creed for us here tonight. That's if you're a Christian. I hope this will be really helpful and will sharpen you. And if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight or you're listening a little bit later, I want to give you three statements, three truths that if you will affirm these, 
they will change your life forever. So I want you to see these three statements that we're going to think about as, as an invitation to engage with them and then to confess them with your own lips. So let's do that. Let's dive into Acts chapter 4. And what has been going on, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4 and, and the book of Acts, it's a, it's a history of what's happening immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. His disciples, his followers have been told to go and take the good news and to scatter it. And that's what they're doing here in Acts. They're preaching it. They're telling people about Jesus. And the church is being sent forward into the world. So as we engage with this in Acts chapter 4, the first point is simply this. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The first of our statements, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That was a powerful statement. It is a true statement. But the skeptic will say that that is about as pointless, John, as believing in your little green bottle. They will deny the existence of such a person. You talk about Jesus. Jesus didn't even exist. Well, let me quote from a man called Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book, Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. This is what this guy writes. He's a scholar and an academic, and he says, what I hope to do is to convince genuine seekers who really want to know how we know that Jesus did exist as virtually every scholar of antiquity, of biblical studies, of classics, and of Christian origins in this country, and in fact the Western world agrees. And many of these scholars have no vested interest in the matter. As it turns out, I myself do not. I'm not a Christian. I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. I am an agnostic with atheist leanings. You see, if we go to uh, the place of the university, if we go uh, into the school of learning around the area of antiquity, of history, of ancient history, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are sure that He really did exist. A man from Nazareth called Jesus did walk the earth. We cannot deny that. Now, the question is, not if He was a fictional character, but who exactly he was. And so our text from Acts chapter 4 tonight states that Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 2, what are they promoting? What are they teaching? These are eyewitnesses of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. This is historical material. It's not made up. It's accurate from the time. It's precise in the things that it records. Well, these two men who walked closely with Jesus, who followed him for three years, who were up close and personal with him, what do they say? I want to know what they say. What do they say? Well, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 2, they are proclaiming in Jesus. They're proclaiming verse 2 in Jesus. And in chapter 3, if you scan back with me into chapter 3, it's the setting for our passage. We find Peter and John, these two men who had been following Jesus for three years, and they're at a temple, and they've just healed a crippled man. Perhaps you're familiar with the little course, the little the lame man who went walking and leaping and praising God. We used to sing it in our primary schools. Here it is. It's in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple to meet this man who's been born lame, and he asks for them to help. And they say in verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And this creates a huge stir. All the people start to run. Look at verse 11 in chapter 3. All the people run together. They want to find out who has just done this. Because you can imagine if we had one person in Lurgan that sat in the same place every day who had been born lame, and everybody knew him and knew his family, and one day you saw him walking and leaping and praising God, you'd wonder, what has happened? And so everybody runs. What's going on? And they listen. And what do they listen to Peter say? Look at verse 13. What is the power that this has been done by? It's verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant or his son or child, can be translated, Jesus. This is all being done in the name of the Son of God. And this isn't something that we've just dreamt up. This is, this is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac the God of Jacob. We stand on very tall shoulders, is what Peter's saying. We're in the stream of of all of history, and it's by his name that this has happened. And so he addresses the crowd. He makes it clear and plain. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Now, the skeptic will come back and say it tonight. That's substantiated. There's no evidence. Well, the people have a lame man walking before them. The lame man from birth walking and leaping and praising God. And you might say to me, well, John, we don't have that tonight. We don't have this man recorded from history before us. No, we don't. But we have thousands upon thousands of lives who have been dramatically changed. People who have been converted by the Holy Spirit coming and impacting them. And you, if you are a skeptic tonight, will know that deep inside you that you have been made for something more. You're trying to connect through your rocks or stones or whatever belief system it is that you have, through engaging with the outside world, you know you yearn for this. It's what Nigel called on Friday night, this echo of Eden that is within us. And so you know that what we're talking about here tonight is not some far-fetched movie, that this is reality. And as we come amongst the church family, what do you experience here tonight, hopefully in Hill Street in some way? Will you see people from different economic backgrounds forging friendships here? You, you see people who, uh, and we can't help but do this, who annoy one another, and yet we choose to love one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. You find people here who have experienced joy and love and hope and peace, a welcome and rest. You find people here who have searched for life's answers and found them, not from a man, but from the Lord Jesus Christ, through his word, not from a mere man. You see people who hurt and who forgive, who travel through the ups and downs in life, people who are bound together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you start to experience that there is something more, that there is something in all of this. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent into the world to save us from the mess that we have made in our sinful selves. And so if we don't trust Jesus tonight, who do we trust? 
what, where are we looking to for our answers? What's going to provide the answers to life and to death? Who do you trust? What do you trust? How do you make sense of this world? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Secondly, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verses 2 through to 4. They were greatly annoyed. The people are, uh, some of the religious people of the day are greatly annoyed because they were teaching, that's Peter and John, uh, and proclaiming in Jesus what? The resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And then verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about about 5,000. You see, tonight, we don't just believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and it ends there. We believe that Jesus Christ didn't come to sit on an earthly throne and to be served. Instead, we believe that He came, and that Jesus came to do a job sent by His Father, that He came here on a mission, and the mission wasn't to establish that kingdom made of bricks and concrete and to muster an army that He could conquer the world. Jesus came here to die and to rise again. Why? Well, as death was necessary because the justice of a holy God required a sinless sacrifice. Now, if you're engaging with this tonight and you're not a believer, I am aware that there's quite a lot of terms and things going on here as we try to pull our heads around this all. Please do speak this at the end. But as death was necessary because of the justice demanded by a holy God, and therefore Christ, fully God and fully man, had to give a sinless sacrifice of his life. But that's his death. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, the resurrection is necessary, otherwise he would have achieved nothing. Death would be still as strong as ever. Death would have the final say. The grave would still have the victory. But because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what do we see throughout the Acts of the Apostles, this book in the New Testament and the Scriptures that we have? We hear that time and time and time again, what is promoted, what is proclaimed, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the thing that changes everything. And so tonight, as we start to think about faith, this this cloud of faith that can be pulled and stretched in many different directions, what we're trying to say is, no, this has to be arrow straight. It has to be super sharp that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that we believe that He rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, changes everything because we know that as he rose, so one day too, we will rise from the dead. That is what we believe. Because the grave could not hold Jesus, when he returns, it will not hold us. Jesus overcame death. He's more powerful than it. And so our greatest enemy is defeated. Because of the resurrection, it means that Jesus contains all the answers for life and for death. Because he rose from the dead, it authenticates the previous statement that indeed he is the Son of God. Because he rose from the dead, we can't ignore him. Because chapter 3, 
And verse 15 of Acts says what? Chapter 3 and verse 15, he is the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And in chapter 4 and verse 2, we, are, we hear the proclaiming of Jesus, the resurrection of him from the dead. And in chapter 4, verse 10, notice it again. Whenever Peter preaches and he tells the people as he makes response, he says, Jesus Christ, not just someone called Jesus Christ, he gives the location, remember that's important, historical accuracy, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. The grave was empty that very first, very first Easter, and Jesus appeared to many. The grave was empty, the gospel was proclaimed, and then look at verse 4. If you think that tonight that this is, this is just a, a made-up religion that's for, for people of a certain place, of a certain time, and that it's not really for us, that it's, it's, it's really for just those on the margins, Look at as as Peter proclaims this, filled with the power of the Spirit, how many people believed? We can read over it very quickly. The number of men came to about 5,000. Such a stir has been created by this, this lame man walking and leaping and praising God. Such a stir has been created that people are flocking, running to hear the good news of the gospel being preached, and 5,000 people come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust that He is the Son of God and that He rose from the dead. And thousands upon millions have trusted ever since. So tonight, what difference does an empty grave in the Middle East 2,000 plus years ago make to our lives? It gives us the certainty that death is not the end, that there is a Savior who is more powerful than it. It unfolds for us that there is a God who loves us, and it means this. If you take nothing else away from tonight, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ means this, that every single problem that we have in life is minimized in light of it. As we look through the lens of the resurrection, Every anxiety is put into perspective. Every negative thought is given perspective. Every reason to fear should evaporate from us because Jesus lives. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and very quickly and finally, I believe that there is salvation in no other name. This is where we get to the crux of it. You see it there in verse 12. Peter has this opportunity to speak the good news, and what does he want to do? He wants to make it really clear. And isn't that what we want to do? If this is true, if we really, really do believe this, if we're basing our lives upon it, then surely we want to get the truth across. And so he makes it clear, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. Nothing else will save. No amount of rule keeping in a certain religious system, no amount of pilgrimage in another religious system, no amount of, of connecting through whatever various form we want to, to something beyond ourselves, no matter what you construct, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
a writer for the Washington Post called Kathleen Parker said this. She, she wrote an article on this exact topic, uh, and it was after Franklin Graham had made a statement. Uh, Franklin made a statement, and he said this, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, a normal statement to hear within a, in a church. And yet this writer, Kathleen Parker, picked it up in the Washington Post, and she, she wrote a big article about it, uh, pretty much running down this view, saying, isn't it foolish, isn't it silly? She, she went on to write this. She said, it, do, it doesn't matter where one prays, right? All prayers lead to heaven. And to support her point, she went on and cited a piece of study that had been taken by a guy called David Campbell of Notre Dame University and another guy called Robert Putman of Harvard, which indicated, and she used this as evidence, which indicated that nearly two-thirds of American evangelicals under the age of 35 believe that all non-Christians go to heaven. Two-thirds of evangelicals under the age of 35 believe that all non-Christians go to heaven. And so if that's the case, then really our, our question tonight is null and, and void. It really doesn't matter, we would say, if you have a faith, all faiths will get us to heaven. But that is not what Scripture teaches us. That is not what Acts chapter 4 teaches. That is certainly not what verse 12 is telling us, that there is no salvation in anyone else apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a general faith in some way and a notion about the Lord Jesus Christ, that person at work or school the person that says, I have faith in Jesus, but really they don't know what that means. They can't articulate it. They certainly can't give uh, credence to these three statements that we have thought about tonight. Well, it simply will not do. That person will not be okay before our judge. Some sort of distant religious veneer where you acknowledge Jesus, but he is not your king, will not save. Some sentimental faith and anyone or anything will not save. Some sort of connection that we feel to something outside of ourselves through an activity that we do will not save. And that voice that tells us when we die, that we will be okay, that we will be able to negotiate with God, that we will be able to sweet-talk Him, please know that there will be no pleading and there will be no conversation. There is salvation in no other name. And so tonight, we cannot fool ourselves. We can't be disillusioned. We can't be led down a blind alley of thinking that we will be safe by, meeting, by making up this a term of faith for ourselves. Jesus Christ is the only name by which we shall be saved. He is our only hope. In Him we find identity and value and purpose and meaning. So does having a faith mean that we will get to heaven? No, it doesn't. A faith, some general term of faith, no, it doesn't. But trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone means we shall be saved. And so Christian tonight, these three short creedal sentences, I trust will sharpen who you understand yourself to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it will sharpen your conversations in your workplace or in the university. 
that whenever someone talks to you or engages with you about faith, that you will have these three things in your mind. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that I believe that He rose from the dead, and that there is no other name under heaven by which you shall be saved. Sharp, straight, pointed. And if you're not a Christian then tonight, please do see these three statements as a gracious invitation an invitation to take them as your own. And I pray that you will, that you will confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, and that there's salvation in no other name. Praise God there is salvation in no other name tonight. Let's pray together.